I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 31, The Right of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Ingle, volume 4, pages 1035 to 1051. And after that, a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Vatican and Homosexuality. The Vatican and Homosexuality was published in 1988 by Crossroad Publishing Company of New York and edited by Janine Gramick and Pat Fury, a pseudonym. It contains 26 reflections on the Vatican's 1986 letter to the bishops of the Catholic Church on the pastoral care of homosexual persons. This document was a belated follow-up to an earlier work of the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Persona Humana, the Declaration on Certain Questions Concerning Sexual Ethics. The disastrous document, Persona Humana, commonly referred to as the Declaration on Sexual Ethics, was issued by the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Franjo Cardinal Sepper, Prefect, and was promulgated by Pope Paul VI on December 29, 1975. The soft, almost effeminate language used throughout the text is striking, especially when compared to traditional church documents on sexual morality. The relevant discourse on the question of homosexuality begins with Section 8. The Declaration states that there are two categories of homosexuals. First, there are homosexuals whose tendency comes from a false education, from a lack of normal sexual development, from habit, from bad example, or from other similar causes, and is transitory or at least not incurable. Then there are homosexuals who are definitively such because of some kind of innate instinct or pathological constitution judged to be incurable. The paradigm shift from the traditional view of homosexuality or sodomy as an acquired vice to the idea of homosexuality as an inborn condition or genetic acquisition is immediately discernible. With regard to the congenital homosexual, the Declaration states that some people conclude that their tendency is so natural that it justifies in their case homosexual relations within a sincere communion of life and love analogous to marriage. Insofar as such homosexuals feel incapable of enduring a solitary life. As it stands, this statement is quite simply a mess. Its open ending gives the impression that a sincere communion of life and love analogous to marriage can actually exist in a submedical, sadomedical relationship, and that such a relationship might even be meritorious for those who cannot bear the single life. Section 8 states that sodomites who are suffering from personal difficulties and their inability to fit into society must be given understanding and hope and their culpability judged with prudence. Even though sacred scripture condemns sodomy as a serious depravity and even presented as the sad consequence of rejecting God, the document claims this reality doesn't permit us to conclude that all those who suffer from this anomaly are personally responsible for it. Say what? Finally, at the end of Section 8, the document concludes that homosexual acts, but not sinful, lustful, and perverted thoughts and words, are intrinsically disordered and can in no case 
be approved. Not only was this wretched piece of homosexual apologia approved by the Holy See, but it was permitted to stand uncorrected for 11 years until October 1, 1986, when Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger issued the letter to the bishops of the Catholic Church on the pastoral care of homosexuals. The 1986 letter, however, does not come out forthrightly and acknowledge the errors present in persona humana and start with a fresh slate. The confusion is further compounded by the continued use of non-defined terminology used in persona humana. The document's use of the term homosexual person is as ill-advised in the 1986 letter as it was in persona humana. The letter does declare in the gentlest of terms that buggering one's neighbor is an immoral act. This does not mean that homosexual persons are not often generous in giving of themselves, the reader is assured. But when they engage in homosexual activity, they confirm within themselves a disordered sexual inclination, which is essentially self-indulgent. The letter deplores violent malice on, in speech or in action against homosexual persons, without reference to the fact that violence and malice are endemic in the homosexual personality as well as the homosexual subculture, to which the document pays scarce attention. It also encourages the hierarchy to institute special forms of pastoral care for homosexuals, even though these ministries, with the exception of courage, have seriously compromised the church's stand against homosexuality and in many cases have served as an inducement to sin. As to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith suggestion that more sex instruction for Catholic school children, including information on homosexuality, be implemented in Catholic dioceses, one can only believe that the writers of the document have taken leave of their wits to offer such a proposal. The one positive note in the letter is the suggestion, not order, that all support, including the use of church facilities, should be withdrawn from any organization which seeks to undermine church teachings. This singular admonition did, in fact, prod some American bishops to finally withdraw support for organizations like Dignity and New Ways and prohibit them from using church facilities to launch their attacks on Catholic morality. With this background, let us return to the Vatican and homosexuality. Among the well-known feminist and or lesbian cohorts invited to comment on the 1986 letter to the bishops of the Catholic Church on the pastoral care of homosexual persons are Sister Gramic, her SSND pro-abort colleague Margaret Ellen Traxier, Traxler, Anne Patrick Ware, a sister of Loretto and, a, and leader of the National Coalition of American Nuns, Mary Jo Weaver, a herstory feminist and a dabbler in Wicca pagan witchcraft, and Rosemary Houghton, a Catholic convert and self-taught feminist theologian. These women reflect the growing influence of feminists on the homosexual movement. Other contributors include Dominican Benedict M. Ashley, Father Andre Guindon, Professor of Moral Theology at St. Paul's University in Ottawa, Peter Hebblethwaite, the popular writer on Vatican affairs, Archbishop John R. Quinn of San Francisco, and Robert Nugent. 
and toward an understanding of the letter on the pastoral care of the homosexual person, Archbishop Quinn appears to want to distance himself from the document without actually publicly rejecting it. As critic William H. Shannon notes in his A Response to Archbishop Quinn, which follows the prelate's statement, he, Quinn, quotes absolutely nothing from the CDF letter, but rather depends on documents like To Live in Jesus Christ that provide for a more sympathetic and ambiguous presentation on homosexuality. From a feminist viewpoint, the 1986 letter from the office of Cardinal Ratzinger has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. According to Sister Anne Patrick Ware, the Vatican document fails to address the distress of homosexual persons and homophobia in society. She finds the document harsh, unfeeling, and dangerous. Liliana Kopp says the document is irredeemably flawed because of fundamentalist biblical exegesis, pre-scientific church tradition, and seriously inexact historical data. Mary C. Siggers decries the fact that the CDF director has ended dignity masses in the Diocese of Brooklyn, Buffalo, Atlanta, New York, Pensacola, and Vancouver, B.C. According to Seggers, the document is inadequate from both a jurisprudential and moral theological perspective because it assumes an excessively rigid, narrow, reductionist definition of sexuality. It holds to a negative conception of same-sex love as as inevitably disordered and sinful, and it seems to overlook women's experience. The church can learn from lesbian feminists a more subtle, rich appreciation of same-sex love, she says, and instead of pronouncing homosexuality to be an evil, might focus on healthy, committed same-sex relationships, which provide the setting and conditions for moral and spiritual growth. In Rome Speaks, the Church Responds, Janine Gromick states that lesbians and gay Catholics, privately and publicly, have called the Vatican letter disgusting and vile, but she hopes that they can bring themselves to forgive the pride, lack of compassion, and self-righteousness which are part of the scandals of the Roman Catholic Church. Gromick criticizes the 1986 letter as being preoccupied almost to the point of obsession with genital activity but silent on issues of social justice, prejudice, and violence against homosexual persons. In Compassion and Orientation, Dominican Benedict M. Ashley states he entirely agrees with the substance of the Vatican document. However, he makes a number of statements and assumptions that tend to support the homosexualist position. Father Ashley talks of homosexuality in general, and homosexual orientation in particular, as a disability which prevents one not from loving sexually, but heterosexually, and therefore from the ability to make a permanent and procreative marriage commitment. He uses the homosexual collective's term homophobia in an uncritical manner, claiming that many heterosexuals are not secure in their orientation and that these homophobic Catholics are scandalized at forms of ministry that seem to condone homosexuality. Thus, we have to be compassionate, not only toward struggling gays, but the majority of people who fear that the church is getting soft on homosexuality, says Father Ashley. Church ministry to homosexuals should, according to Ashley, 
advocate the protection of civil rights for homosexuals, give special prominence to AIDS ministry, and foster support groups which are consistent with the teachings of the church, as well as solid family life where children can achieve heterosexual maturity. In closing, Ashley asks forgiveness for having offended any homosexual by his use of language that may seem condemnatory or lacking in sensitivity. He also writes that while the 1986 document can be criticized on details of expression or, or lack of nuance, inevitable in a brief document directed at clearing up past ambiguities, nevertheless it speaks a truth which is not destructive but healing. Perhaps the most original and therefore the most interesting of the essays is Peter Hebblethwaite's Please Don't Shoot the Bearer of Bad Tidings, an open letter on Cardinal Ratzinger's document. As his title implies, Hebblethwaite goes right for the juggler when he states that the church will never budge on the matter of the objective and intrinsic sinfulness of homosexual acts, which is based upon natural law arguments. He advises homosexual enthusiasts to avoid the common pitfall of imagining that what I wanted to happen was actually going to happen. Hebblethwaite does, however, offer Catholic homosexuals some unsolicited advice, rules he calls them. He suggests that they remain in the church, that they not repay insults from Cardinal Ratzinger in kind, that they watch out for unguarded claims and continue with AIDS ministries. The Vatican homosexuality concludes with the essay on with the essay How the Church Can Learn from Gays and Lesbians by ex Jesuit John Giles Milhaven, a board member of Catholics for a Free Choice and Pro Abort Theorist of Delayed Animation. Editors Gramick and Fury identify Milhaven as a professor of religious studies at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. According to Milhaven, the Catholic Church has at present no sexual ethics, that is, sexual ethics that anyone pays attention to. His main complaint is that the Church makes its judgments on the nature and value of sex without a single reasoned appeal to the experience of sex. Since it is the task of the theologian to help the rest of the Church by drawing with broad conceptual strokes a model of the moral life, he says, Gay and lesbian Catholics could help the theologian by doing what they themselves, unless they were also theologians, don't need to do, put into general terms why sex is important to them. Although the Vatican's 1975 declaration on certain questions concerning sexual ethics certainly strengthened the position of the homosexual collective in the Church, on the 1986 letter to the bishops, of the Catholic Church on the pastoral care of homosexual persons did little to disturb the day-to-day -day activities of Catholic homosexual clergy and religious. It is interesting to note that groups like New Ways and Dignity still felt the need to push the envelope when, even when it was not to their great advantage to do so. The collective views all attempts by the Vatican to flatter and cajole it into submission as a sign of weakness and an invitation for further attack, a perception which is unfortunately all too correct. Homosexuality in the Priesthood and the Religious Life Homosexuality in the Priesthood and Religious Life, edited by Janine Gramick and published by Crossroad Publishers in 1989, is a valuable book 
in terms of the insights it offers into the early inner workings of the homosexual network within the church, especially the role played by New Ways and various homosexual auxiliary groups within Catholic dioceses and religious orders in the 1970s. Contributors include homosexual historian John Boswell, radical feminist Rosemary Radford Ruther of Women Church, and pro-abort Daniel C. McGuire of Marquette University, other contributors like Captain Richard J. Cardarelli, a self-avowed homosexual, and Father John P. Hilgeman, who has been active in gay in the gay politics since 1974, are less known outside of clerical gay circles. Editor Gramic provides a timetable for in-house organizational interest in the issue of homosexuality among Catholic priests and religious starting in the 1970s. Gramic states that in 1977, a small group of Christian brothers held a sexuality study seminar, which resulted in the booklet Sexuality and Brotherhood, containing an essay by Gabriel Moran that suggests religious life might provide a stable setting for the working out of homosexual love, and that religious organizations should be a natural bridge for the meeting of straight and gay worlds. In 1982, Gramic says that same study group issued Prejudice, a booklet tackling the theological and sociological aspects of homophobia. About the same time that the Christian brothers broke the internal barrier of silence on the issue of homosexuality among clergy and religious, Gramic says the Jesuits broached the issue of homosexuality in their periodical studies in the spirituality of Jesuits. In 1978, Gramic report, reports the National Assembly of Religious Women published an interview with two lesbian nuns. The following year, the National Conference of Vocation Directors of Men published an article on homosexual candidates for the priesthood. In the late 1970s, Father John Harvey formed Renewal, Rest, and Recreation to directly minister to homosexual priests and religious in accordance with the tenets of the Catholic Church, says Gramic. At the same time, the commu- same, at the same time, Communication Ministry, Inc., began to network and organize homosexual clergy and religious at the grassroots level. A third group, New Ways Ministry, was also formed in 1977, says Gramic. One of its earliest projects was a retreat for lesbian nuns who apparently were distressed that male clergy and religious were dominating the homosexual retreat scene. Gramic notes that public awareness of homosexual priests began to grow in the 1980s as media revelations of clerical sexual abuse of minors began to dominate the airways. Although adult homosexuality and pedophilia are distinct clinical categories, she says, gay priests have unfortunately been linked to this dysfunctional behavior in the public's mind. It is significant that Gramic refers to pederasty as dysfunctional dysfunctional rather than criminal behavior. A segment of homosexuality in the priesthood and religious life is devoted to essays by lesbian nuns and homosexual brothers and priests who, in the words of Gramic, are claiming their own pride and goodness and following the gospel mandate to let their light shine instead of hiding them under a bushel or in a closet. In Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, 
avowed homosexual father Richard J. Cardarelli recalls that he knew from an early age that he was somehow different from other boys. After a troubled youth, he said he could entered religious life as a means of hiding his real identity as a homosexual and to learn how to be someone else. Sadly, he says, the walls of the Capitan Monastery were unable to protect him from those sexual feelings and emotional attractions to others or the homophobia that was rampant within the order. Cardarelli says he sought spiritual guidance from a Franciscan friar connected to Dignity Boston who assured him that it was possible to be a priest and be gay. Shortly afterwards, in 1974, Cardarelli left the novitiate to find himself within the embrace of the homosexual collective. <clears throat> Eventually, having been cured of his self-hatred and the deadly effects of homophobia, he returned to his order, received therapy for alcoholism, and was ordained a Capitan priest, he says. Throughout this period, he remained in active in dignity and served as his chaplain. I am convinced that my sensitivity to the suffering of others and my compassionate commitment to justice and peace concerns are due to my homosexuality and the long process of accepting it, says the Capuchin priest. They asked Jesus, are you a king? And they asked Cardarelli, are you a queen? And he replies, yes, I am a priest. I am gay. I am proud. In addition to maintaining an association uh, with dignity, Cardarelli has also maintained close contact with new ways. Other homosexuals who tell their story in homosexuality in the priesthood and religious life are Trappist monk Matthew Kelty, the noted spiritual writer and confessor to Father Lewis, Thomas Merton, artist William Hart McNichols, S.J., and sister Judith Whitaker. In the final section of the book, Dealing with Ministerial Perspectives, we find essays by Father Robert Nugent on homosexuality and seminary candidates, Sister Gramic on lesbian nuns, identity, affirmation, and gender, and Father John P. Hilgeman, the sycamore is not the only kind of tree outside my window, as an essay on how the church can assist gay seminarians, priests, and religious by giving positive messages about homosexuality <clears throat> from the early stages of formation, by rejecting homophobia, by encouraging people to risk the journey of growth while climbing the often rocky and uncertain path to the virtues of celibacy and chastity, and by encouraging positive and healthy role models for them in terms of openly gay priests, religious bishops, and popes for the gay community. The Road to Emmaus, Daily Encounters with the Risen Christ. This inclusive devotional was published by Emmaus Press in 1989 and is distributed by New Ways. The editor of The Road to Emmaus is Joseph W. Houle, an avowed homosexual and director of Emmaus House of Prayer of the Mid-Atlantic District of the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches in Washington, D.C., in his preface, Huell says that the text has been provided by writers who are either openly gay and lesbian Christians or who actively support gay and lesbian Christians in their struggle for self-esteem and full acceptance in the world and in the church. Janine Gromick and Robert Nugent 
provide the meditations for January. Not unexpectedly, while these scriptural while these scriptural meditations are not particularly religious, they are thoroughly political. In her January third meditation, John ten seven to seventeen, Gramic winds, I have seen the bands of ecclesiastical predators expel lesbians and gay Christians from our churches, relegate women to second class citizenship, and support government policies that oppress the poor. In her January 11th meditation, Gramic writes, I also need to meet our Father and Mother God in a quiet place. In her January 13th meditation, the nun's thoughts drift to modern-day self-righteous pariahs, such as the religious leaders who enforce doctrinal orthodoxy at the expense of God's command to love, and politicians, business people, and scientists who perpetrate a military-industrial complex that keeps the third world supplied with weapons instead of food. Issues related to the ordination of women, to the priesthood, and to homosexual unions arise in Gramic's January 14th meditation when she prays to Jesus to abolish unjust laws. I bring to you church laws which prohibit women from being ordained to the priesthood or which bar homosexual persons from having their committed relationships blessed, she prays. The hierarchy gets another blast in Gramic's January 25th meditation, Mark 6, 4 to 29, 6, 14 to 29, in which she ponders, like Hesiod, like Herod, some of our church leaders are also so drunk with power that they seek to control the intimate private lives of others. They save face by appealing to church doctrine, all the while failing to ask them forgiveness for past and present religious intolerance, racism, and sexism. In his meditations, Nugent makes use of the thoughts of some modernist prototypes such as Dutch Dominican Edward Schillebeek's Nikos Kozanskas, author of The Last Temptation of Christ, and homosexual activist Brian McNaught. In his January 7th meditation, John 2, 1-11, Nugent reflects on weddings and holy unions, but without mentioning the words, husband and wife. Instead, he uses the neutered term couples or partners. Similarly, he gives a plug for alternative family structures in his January 17th meditation, Mark 1 to 20, when when he prays, he, Jesus, simply makes it clear that commitments to the reign supersedes all family ties. Like Jesus, we need family loyalty, and like Jesus, We often find our loyalties in other kinds of families, especially among those who support and nourish our commitments to personal integrity. In his January 20th meditation, Mark 4, 35-41, Nugent expresses his fear of drowning in the debates and polarization that rock the church arc over issues of human sexuality, nuclear weapons, capital punishment, abortion, and authority. The issue of outmoded religious symbols and signs, doctrines, practices, acts, objects, is the theme of Nugent's January 28th meditation, Mark 7, 1-23. He, Jesus, performed prescribed rituals and prayed the required prayers, but in a way that illuminated their true meaning. And when they were empty and meaningless, he did not hesitate to transform them, replace them, or discard them. Nugent meditates. 
homosexuality, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish issues, A Fishbone Tale. This important essay by Robert Nugent and Janine Gramick originally appeared in Homosexuality and Religion, edited by Richard Hasbany, Ph.D., and published by Harrington Park Press in 1989. Harrington Park Press is an imprint of Haworth Press, Inc., with offices in New York, London, and Oxford, and caters to gay, lesbian, and gender interests. The article was later reproduced in booklet form and distributed by New Ways. The Appearance of Homosexuality, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish Issues, A Fishbone Tale, is a prominent secular journal in a prominent secular journal on homosexuality is one indication of the expanding influence of Gramic and Nugent in a in homosexual circles outside of the Catholic Church. As the title of Fishbone Tale suggests, Nugent and Gramic compare homosexuality to a fishbone caught in the church's throat that the church can neither eject nor swallow entirely. Therefore homosexuals struggling for full acceptance in the church must confront the classical understanding of the human being and human sexual differentiation as these concepts have traditionally influenced the churches. The authors present the statements of major figures in the mainline U.S. Christian denominations and branches of Judaism who have spoken publicly and urged study and reassessment of the traditional teachings and practices regarding homosexuality and contemporary major church studies and policy statements of several Christian denominations. Nugent and Gramic also outline and critique several possible ecclesiastical stances on homosexuality and articulate some of the common theological and pastoral concerns that these Christian denominations share. The essay begins with a discussion of various models or approaches to homosexuality. The first model is the religious model that characterizes homosexuality as a direct result of personal moral failure or of a deliberate sin for which the individual is held accountable, blameworthy, and sometimes even punished, either in this world or the next. Then there is the medical model that views homosexuality as an illness. Finally, there is the contemporary essentialist scientific model which holds that true homosexual orientation is established at a relatively early stage of development in the individual, is permanent and generally impervious to techniques for radical change. In terms of the morality of sexual acts, homosexual or otherwise, Nugent and Gramic claim that there is a trend among many moralists in all denominations today who question whether there are any human acts that can be labeled intrinsically evil when judged apart from other considerations, such as consequences, the intention of the acting person, and the tensions between the moral values and disvalues associated with all human acts. Gramic and Nugent cite the early works of Jesuit theologian John McNeil and Charles Curran as contributing to the re-examination of traditional church teachings in the Catholic in the Roman Catholic scholarly community. They also cite Vatican II's abandonment of the primary and secondary language when speaking of the procreational and unitive aspects of heterosexual intercourse and marriage as an indication that some contemporary moralists had begun to question the value and viability of an act centered 
morality and encourage the use of more personal criteria, such as the relational aspects of human sexuality. The authors applaud the 1977 Catholic Theological Society of America report human sexuality, new directions in American Catholic thought for its stress on creative growth for integration as the chief purpose of basic finality of sexual intercourse, as opposed to the procreative and unitive dimension that classical Roman Catholic doctrine teaches. Gramic and Nugent place the position of various denominations on the morality of homosexuality into four categories. The first is the rejecting punitive approach that views both the homogenital expression and the homosexual condition orientation as sinful and prohibited by God. Gramic and Nugent reject this approach in total. The second approach is rejecting non-punitive. Religions that hold that position, disposition, condemn homosexual, homogenital acts as being contrary to human nature, but do not reject homosexual persons, explain the authors. Nugent and Gramic reject this approach to a doctrine of unchanging nature and suggest that God is doing something new, part of a new ongoing creation is found in believing faith and spirit-filled homosexual Christians whose experience, values, and decisions about their lifestyles have something positive to say to the larger church. The third approach is the qualified acceptance position that approves of homosexual general as an acceptable way of living out the Christian life, but one that remains inferior to heterosexuality. This compromised position, the authors claim, is reflected in the 1980 Catholic Social Welfare Commission report for the Roman Catholic bishops of England and Wales, but it is not satisfactory to them because it sees heterosexuality as necessarily the human ideal. The fourth and final approach, and one that Nugent and Gramic embrace, is the full acceptance position that evaluates wholesome sexuality in terms of intercommunication, that is, the nature of and quality of the relationship of the persons involved, regardless of gender. According to Nugent and Gramic, the latter position views homosexuality as part of the divine plan of creation, and that homosexual people are present as a sign of the rich diversity of creation, and that homosexual expression is as natural and good in every way as heterosexuality. In connection with this approach, Nugent and Gramic mentioned the sex for recreation category. Here, there are no claims other than the free consent of the persons involved, they state. Using this criterion, the authors speculate that some would argue that if homosexual behavior is humanly good and natural, then logically it ought not be reserved to constitutionally homosexual persons. Others would be free to choose this form of sexual expression as a legitimate variant or preference in sexual relationships. All in all, Nugent and Gramic hope that the issues raised in the article will be explored and developed even further, but they admit that the lesbian and gay struggle will be painful and difficult one, and that for many the changes will not be substantial enough or come soon enough. 
If a paradigm shift is occurring in the churches and synagogues, then gay men and lesbian women will have an even more important part to play in helping to helping explore, understand, and embrace that shift. If war is too important to leave to the generals, then spirituality and sexuality are too important to leave to the theologians and hierarchical leaders, conclude Nugent and Gramic. Readers will want to keep in mind that a fishbone tale must have been written about the time that the Maida Commission was instituted in March of 1988, or a short time later, since Haworth Press published Homosexuality and Religion in 1989. More importantly, there are no references to this important essay in the final Maida Commission report. Building Bridges, Gay and Lesbian Reality and the Catholic Church Building Bridges by Robert Nugent and Janine Gramick, published in 1992 by 23rd Publications, is a pivotal publication in the history of New Ways and in the life of its authors, as it became the focal point of the reactivated MIDA Commission in 1994. This book is dedicated to those persons who made New Ways possible, that is, the superiors of the school sisters of Notre Dame, and the Society of the Divine Savior in the U.S. and Rome, including U.S. Provincials, Sisters Frances Regis Carton, Ruth Marie May, Patricia Flynn, and Christine Mulcahy, and the SSND Generalate leaders in Rome, Mother Georgiane Segner, and Mother Mary Margaret Joha, and U.S. Salvatorian Provincials, Fathers Myron Wagner, Justin Pierce, Barry Griffin, and Paul Portland, and SDS superiors in Rome, Gerald Rogowski, and Malachi McBride. Except for Nugent's novel idea that the church, except for Nugent's novel idea that the church should set up a new model of ministry composed solely of priests and religious who have AIDS or HIV positive, there is not an original idea in the book. Nugent and Gramic simply regurgitate the arguments for homosexuality put forth by the secular homosexual collective. In Gay and Lesbian Rights, Nugent hails the coming of age of the gay liberation movement at the Stonewall Inn in 1969. He says that homosexuals are born that way and therefore must be true to their nature. He dismisses the idea that age is related to sodomy that he predicts that the struggle for gay rights will continue and expand in the coming years. Gramic likewise, frames the question of gay rights in terms of liberation and a new declaration of independence. She admits that many gay males in the visible gay subculture and are promiscuous, but she blames this on the social and cultural factors, which make it difficult for homosexual men and women to have stable relationships. She states that most experts now believe that a change in orientation, i.e. in desire and attraction, is not possible. Although Gramic admits that an obvious function of the general organs is reproduction, she wonders if other parts of the body may serve multiple purposes. Why is it not? Why is that the sexual parts may not? Placing a hierarchy of value on body parts, Gramic says, leads to an idolatry or sacralization of some parts. One cannot talk of the natural law, says the nun, since nature is dynamic and always in a state of flux. 
Gramic decries extreme, subtle, and personal homophobia. Among the options Nugent offers to married homosexuals is that of maintaining an open relationship whereby the homosexual partner and sometimes the heterosexual partner can seek out general relationships with an understanding that these will not become an emotional threat to the primary commitment. He does note, however, that AIDS has made this solution somewhat problematic. One of the many one of the authorities that Gramic calls upon to support her theory that many, if not most, basically heterosexual persons experience some degree of same-sex feelings, fantasies, desires, or attraction, is the notorious homosexual pederast Reverend Paul Shanley. The nun describes Shanley as the Boston street priest of the 1960s who used to point out that almost everyone has a sexual major and minor. It is one of the telling characteristics of all New Ways publications and the writings of Gramic and Nugent in particular that the problem of homosexual pederasty and the unbelievable tragedy of moral chaos clerical predators leave on in their wake is rarely acknowledged, much less addressed. On the matter of admitting homosexuals into the priesthood, Nugent suggests that anyone opposed to this to the practice needs to undergo deprogramming for homophobia. Some gay candidates are challenging us to explore appropriate expressions of sexuality and intimacy in religious life, he states. We have to face a new reality that some people come to the seminary or religious life either with an entirely different working definition of celibacy or with simply an a priori rejection of the traditional understanding that excludes general intimacy, he adds. A homosexual candidate for the priesthood may not may have strong attachments to his gay network of friends, says Nugent, and he will certainly expect to maintain contact with some of them and expects that they will be welcomed into the seminary or congregation's houses with warmth and hospitality. In other words, a diocese or religious order that accepts homosexual candidates is also expected to accept homosexuals from the outside as guests at the seminary or house of religion. In his essay, Theological Contributions of the U.S. Church, Nugent quotes Father Richard McCormick's theories of proportionalism and subjectivity, whereby one judges the morality of homosexual acts by the meaning and pattern of homosexual acts in the person's life. Nugent states that McCormick and others attempting to renew Roman Catholic morality believe that morality is too often equated with acts, especially external ones. Among the among the U.S. Catholic theologians cited by Gramic who have challenged the traditional teachings of the Church on the inherent sinfulness of sodomy are John McNeil, Margaret Farley, Rosemary Ruther, and Daniel McGuire. In her closing essay for Lesbian, Gay, Theology, and Spirituality, the New Frontier, Gramic claims that although a gay and lesbian spirituality began to be formally constructed only since the late 1970s, lesbian gay persons long incarnated a spirituality that put them uniquely in touch with the transcendent. Only when there is no societal 
economic or religious prejudice felt by an individual because of his or her sexual orientation, gender, color, religious, or political beliefs, can the church claim that humankind is beginning to feel on this earth the freedom of the daughters and sons of God, Gramic concludes. There are no surprises in building bridges. It is simply a political exercise in pro-homosexual apologetics. Voices of Hope, a collection of positive Catholic writings on gay and lesbian issues. Voices of Hope, a collection of positive Catholic writings on gay and lesbian issues, is edited by Janine Gromick and Robert Nugent, and is published by New Ways Ministry and the Center for Homophobia Education. The book was published in 1995, a year after the MIDA Commission completed its work and made its findings and recommendations public. The book's revelation of the political intrigues of Gramic and Nugent in connection with the 1992 Vatican Statement, Some Considerations Concerning the Catholic Response in Legislative Proposals on the, now, the Non-Discrimination of Homosexual Persons, demonstrates their utter contempt for legitimate ecclesiastical authority and their undying devotion to the homosexual collective. Voices of Hope opens with a compendium of statements favorable to the homosexual collective made by American bishops and other Catholic bishops from England and Europe, the United States National Conference of Catholic Bishops and the United States Catholic Conference, NCCB slash USCC, and other national conferences, religious orders and diocesan organizations, Catholic national newspapers and magazines, and Apologists for the Homosexual Collective from 1973 to 1995. Among the most interesting inclusions in this sociology is called to Blessing, a pastoral letter on faith and homosexuality issued by the working group of Catholic gay pastors Huisin, the Netherlands, in 1989. The pastoral letter notes that, with few exceptions, our bishops, both nationally and internationally appear incapable of speaking liberating words about homosexuality and gay and lesbian relationships in particular, and our and the working group as a whole and some of its members as individuals are confronted with rejection by bishops. Thus the need to appeal directly to our brothers and sisters in the Dutch Catholic Church. The working group recalls that in May nineteen ninety four the Dutch bishops issued a mandate forbidding Catholic membership in a number of political and social organizations, including the Bond for Sexual Reform, later renamed the Netherlands Society for Sexual Reform. Despite the Dutch bishops' actions, however, liberation of all kinds, including sexual liberation, appeared to be irrevocable, says the working group, especially since the Second Vatican Council. The idea that sexual, uh, sexuality is intended exclusively for procreation is passé, it claims, and this criticism of traditional morality has brought with it a stronger emphasis on personal conscience and a new view of homosexuality. The working group points to the publication of a person does not have to be alone by, church, by the Church Council by the Dutch Council of Churches in 1977, which states that homosexuality is not an illness and that homosexual expressions based on love are just as legitimate as heterosexual ones. 
The Vatican nixed the council report, but the Dutch bishops were divided on it. No further action has, was taken on the formulation of a joint statement on homosexuality between the Dutch Council of Churches and the Dutch bishops. In opposition to church doctrine that condemns homosexual acts, the working group proclaims the primacy of the homosexual experience and the conviction that homosexual people can give expression to their longings in ways that are good, ways that make them whole and which affirm them and their faith in God's love for them and for the world, and that homosexual friendships and relationships can be made publicly known and are deserving of all respect there. The working group decries the use of scripture, as in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as a weapon against homosexual people, which has resulted in cruelty and even bloodshed. However, it notes, there are gay-friendly passages to be found in scripture, such as the liberation from slavery in Egypt and the destruction of the bonds of death. Unlike the Catholic Church, the working group says it stands ready to see reality as it is. It rejects the old tradition of hiding away scandals in the church, especially since this is no longer possible because the reality of homosexuality, both its pleasant and unpleasant sides, is visible in public life and thought. To suggest that boys and girls normally have heterosexual sexual drives or to retain the expression marital acts for sexual intercourse, the working group observes obscures the facts. There are many types of homosexual and heterosexual expressions, it states, including a permanent relationship, a series of relationships, multiple partners without any permanent commitment or a life of celibacy. Within an extensive gay culture that exists in the West, the working group states homoerotic themes can be found everywhere in artistic expression. There are churches which cater to homosexuals, and there are commercial enterprises where much money is spent and earned in connection with homosexuality. These range from the press, fashion, health, clubs, and tourist industry to prostitution, pornography, and sex tourism, the working group candidly explains. The working group urges homosexuals to follow the admonition of St. Paul. Do not model yourselves on the behavior of the world around you, but let your behavior change, modeled on a new mind. Then you will be able to discern the will of God and to know what is good, acceptable, and perfect, Romans 12:2. But exactly what is the working group's interpretation of putting on a new mind. It certainly is not abandoning homosexual behavior, for the authors make it very clear that sexual abstinence is not per se, and for, the, and for most not the way there, and neither does the way lie for anyone in the denial of one's sexual desires. Rather, the working group speaks in terms of avoiding domination over and misuse of others, avoiding materialism, and eschewing esteem from peers in order to find the vision of peace in which people are attractive for each other and in which they freely promote each other's good, both physical and spiritual. Putting on a new mind, according to the working group, means rejecting the traditional definition of family, marriage, and parent-child models, and the inevitable connection between sex and procreation. 
It means rejecting stereotyped images and roles, especially those based on gender. It means taking an integrated approach to sexuality in which homosexuality will be considered as one form of sexuality and relationship alongside others. It means that gay and lesbian unions be taken seriously in a religious context. It means an ex- it means acceptance of actively homosexual lay pastors who are not bound by the same vows of celibacy or chastity that binds homosexual and heterosexual priests and religious. Called to blessing, a pastoral letter on both on faith and homosexuality is signed by six members of the working group of Catholic gay pastors, Father Professor Doctors Theo Beamer, Doctors Cor Hogan, Doctors John Van Hoydonk, Father John, Father Theo Shermer S.J., and Father Jan Schlattman. Throughout the text of the more than 100 statements found in Voices of Hope can be found many themes that are fully consistent with the philosophy and apt agenda of the homosexual collective, such as homosexuals do not choose their sexual orientation and cannot change that orientation, support for civil legislation that bans discrimination on account of sexual orientation in the areas of employment, housing, and public accommodations, church support for civil and religious unions of homosexual partners, the image of homosexuals as a suffering people who require special parish ministry because they suffer from societal rejection and other homophobic prejudices, support for the inclusion of gays in the military. Scripture writers were ignorant of contemporary social science findings related to constitutional or irreversible homosexual orientation, and their condemnations against sodomy were actually directed against abuses of hospitality, blackmail, prostitution, and especially adultery, rather than homosexual acts per se. Homophobia is a greater infringement of the norm of Christian morality than is homosexual orientation or activity. Any connection between child molestation and homosexuality is the result of unfounded prejudice and homophobic fears. Homosexual people can have Homosexual people have special gifts, including the spiritual gifts, which can help alleviate the religious impoverishment of society and the church, an impoverishment that is due largely to the poor imagery for communicating the secret of the unspeakable. Part 3 of Voices of Hope is devoted to criticism of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith statement, some considerations concerning the Catholic response to legislative proposals on the non-discrimination of homosexual persons issued in June 1992. An official and revised version of the statement was printed in the Vatican newspaper L'Osservatore Romano on July 24, 1992. The 1992 Vatican statement reiterates major points in, of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith 1986 letter to the bishops of the Catholic Church on the pastoral care of homosexual persons, including condemnation of civil legislation, which directly or indirectly serves to legitimize homosexual acts or lifestyle. And now for a reading 
from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which I will have to postpone because I'm already at 55 minutes and I don't want to go over time, so I'll end my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.